This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. And we've got a special thing for you today. We're recording this opening news segment from the 2018 STLV convention in Las Vegas. But of course I can't record it alone, so with me live for the first time in the same room is my co-host, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, you're Damn. here. I'm, I'm looking right across at you like we always do, but you're not on a flat screen. Yeah, I'm seeing <laughs> your actual face. You know, you had this really cool thing you were saying the other day that we've never actually seen our faces. We've seen and heard each other kind of compressed into ones and zeros and sent through internet tubes right. and then reconfigured. So this is really cool. Right. Uh, how's it, was, it going? It, it, I, I'm doing great. It's So far, it's been a great show. And, uh, you know, I was hoping we'd come here and get something out of the show besides um, just, oh, well, you know, there might be some novels coming out soon or whatever. But that's something we're going to talk about. But, of course... On our feature day is A Time to Harvest, which is cool because Kevin Dillmore wrote that with Dayton Ward, and we've seen Kevin several times here at the show. Yeah, definitely, and uh, even talked to him a bit about the novels that he's written with Dayton Ward, including A Time to Sow and A Time to Harvest, and the Vanguard novels and all that stuff. So it's really cool catching up with him. We couldn't get him on the show, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, no, we're really excited to talk about his uh, novel, along with Dayton Ward, A Time to Harvest. But first, I'm sure the news that we've all been waiting for, I'm sure you all have already heard, but in case you haven't, we've got some huge news that was just announced at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention. And I, Bruce, I don't even know. I don't even know if I can, if I can say it without I, weeping I, with joy. The big news, Dan has written a Star Trek novel that will be published now. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> No, the big news is that we do have three new novels announced in early 2019. Yes, you heard it. New Star Trek novels in early 2019. We're talking in January, March, and April. So it's quite exciting. And the first one that will be coming out is a Star Trek Discovery novel, The Way to the Stars, 
written by Star Trek author Una McCormick. That's coming in January. This is so cool. I saw somebody write this online, and I can't agree more. I can't take credit for this, but it it totally makes sense to me. An Una McCormick written novel about Sylvia Tilly is the thing that I didn't know I needed until I heard about it. (laughs) It's so perfect. It's so great. So we do uh, have a blurb. Well, first of all, we do have a cover for that one as well. Uh, so we should probably rate that a little bit. It's very similar to the covers we've seen for the previous Discovery books. We've got kind of Starfield and Nebula in the background and a promo shot of Cadet Tilly on the cover. So, uh, you know, the thing that sells this for me is Star Trek Discovery on the cover, Una McCormick's name on the cover, and the fact that it's about Tilly. I'm giving this one my stamp of approval. Yeah, I give it my stamp of approval. It is consistent with the others. It has a nice blue, purplish background to it with Tilly standing there in the middle in her uniform with her hair pulled back and looking all serious and ready for command. (laughs) Exactly. She's going to be a captain someday. Yes. And not just in the Mirror Universe, I hope. Well, we do have a blurb for that one as well. Despite being an inexperienced Starfleet cadet, Sylvia Tilly became essential to the USS Discovery finding its way back home from the Mirror Universe. But how did she find that courage? From where did she get that steel? Who nurtured that spark of brilliance? The Way to the Stars recounts for fans everywhere the untold story of Tilly's past. It's not easy being 16, especially when everyone expects great things from Tilly. It's even harder when her mother and father are Federation luminaries, not to mention pressing her to attend one of the best schools that the Federation has to offer. Tilly wants to achieve great things, even though she hasn't quite worked out how to do that or what it is she wants to do. But this year, everything will change for Tilly as she is about to embark upon the adventure of a lifetime, an adventure that will take her ever closer to the stars. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, it's been mentioned several times here at STLV that Tilly is a very popular character on Discovery. So I have a feeling that, number one, this book will sell well because of the character. Number two, because of Una McCormick. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Two huge uh, points in its favor. Uh, Mary Wiseman, of course, is a guest here at STLV. Uh, So... You know, next year, the book will be out in time for the convention. Maybe some of you uh, can go get it signed by Mary Wiseman if she returns next year, which I really hope she does because she's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I was wondering, since the book's coming out in January, we don't have a date for the second season of Discovery yet, but Mm -hmm. we know it's early 2019. And I'm willing to bet the book will come out right before the series premieres for the second season. So it's going to be nice to have that kind of filling in the gaps until we get the series launched for season two. Right. Well, speaking of gaps, there is a small gap, it looks like, between this book and the next, which will not be coming out in February, but in March. And that's when we'll be getting the TOS novel, The Antares Maelstrom by Greg Cox. And of course, if that name sounds familiar, you'll know the Antares Maelstrom is one of the things that Khan lists off that he'll chase Kirk around to get to him. So I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round Perdition's flames and round the Antares Maelstrom before I give him up. So 
That's uh, that sounds pretty cool. I, I I like that. We do have a blurb for that one as well. Though. Well, I saw about a guy walking around cosplay as Khan from the Wrath of Khan. It looks just like him. It's That's scary. amazing. Yeah, and I saw him <laughs> eating a hamburger, which was kind of weird too. Huh? Because I never pictured Khan eating a hamburger. Yeah, I didn't picture Khan as the burger type. I, no, I think yeah. I don't. It's know. not like he went through a drive-through. It was like in the. In the casino, but anyway. I think Khan's more of a Cobb salad kind of guy. I, I could be wrong about that. Though. Could be. <laughs> well, yeah, so we've got the blurb. Uh, Bruce, did you want to read the blurb? Oh, I love or? it when you do the blurbs. Because <laughs> you love doing them. I know you do. I kind of do. Okay. <laughs> so we've got Baldur 3 is an obscure planet just beyond the outer fringes of Federation space until a group of struggling, struggling colonists discover vast quantities of the energy source Pergeum beneath the planet's surface. An old-fashioned gold rush is now underway, a chaotic situation as neighboring planets and space, space stations are vastly ill-equipped to deal with the flood of vessels and aliens competing to get to the planet in time to stake their claims. Although Baldur III isn't technically under Federation jurisdiction, Captain James T. Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise are soon diverted to deal with the crisis, one which lies on the other side of the dangerous area of space known as the Antares Maelstrom. Yes. And uh, I do, uh, they did mention that this is going to take place during the five-year mission. Yes, that's right. So, um, yeah, quite interested in that. And then April. April. Oh, I'm excited for this one. Oh, my gosh. The uh, Next Generation. Yes. Available Light is the title of the Next Generation novel coming out in April, and that will be written by Dayton Ward. Is this a book about smoking? Like, you know, somebody says, hey, do you have a light? Is oh, available? yeah, that could be, could be. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is about uh, behavior that some would consider immoral, I suppose, because this purportedly follows up on the Section 31 novel, Control, the kind of controversial novel that seems to have split a bit of the readership, uh, pro and con against it. But you can't deny that that novel had a lot of ripple effects through the post-nemesis continuity. And this novel will be following up on that, as well as connecting back to the A Time To series. Uh, some of I'm assuming some of the actions that Picard takes in that series. So plug for the show. Really glad we're covering that series right now. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And... Uh, if I had to choose a novel that I want a sequel to, it's Control. Yes, absolutely. Um, we, we've seen Hearts and Minds by Dayton Ward had, you know, at the very end of that novel, there were some uh, aspects of Control that were followed up on, or at least kind of uh, we get hints that there's going to be fallout from it. So it looks like we're finally getting that payoff with this one. So I've got the blurb here as well. As fallout from the exposure of the Control AI security program and the unchecked crimes of Section 31 spans the entire Alpha Quadrant and ultimately reaches the halls of Starfleet Command, the Admiralty must decide what the consequences will be for their own, including Captain Jean-Luc Picard, who helped bring down a Federation president and violated the principles of his oath. Meanwhile, deep in the unexplored section of space known as the Odyssean Pass, Picard and the Enterprise crew must put aside personal feelings on the matter and distant political concerns as they investigate the mystery, a, century, a centuries-old massive spacecraft adrift in the void and under attack from marauders looking to claim the ship for themselves and armed with weapons that are evenly matched with Starfleet's finest. Wow, that is a long sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's going to be a long book, too. It's, I have a feeling. It, 
could be absolutely well i think obviously the biggest news here is the drought is over we're getting new star trek novels announced by you know the old standby of writers and continuing with the post nemesis continuity which i think is huge and i know a lot of people were worried about so yeah, Ed Schlesinger was there. He's the editor at Simon Schuster for the Star Trek line. And he mentioned at the panel, which was the Star Trek authors and their books panel, uh, these three books. He didn't announce anything afterwards, but he did say there are more books coming. They just can't announce them yet. So it's mm-hmm. not just these three. There are more coming. And then later on the panel it was mentioned that we're going to see a lot more of Discovery novels. So right now, if you just look at the those first few months of 2019, if that's how it keeps going, then we'll probably see for every three novels might be a discovery is what I'm expecting. That kind of makes sense. I kind of want to ask you, Bruce, what are you hoping for most in the next few announcements? What novel do you want to see? Oh my gosh. Uh, Well, Voyager. Yes. To Lose (laughs) the Earth by Kirsten Beyer. Uh, not announced as far as a date, but we know that she is working on it. She talked about it when she was on the show last. So that's very good. Yes, um, we want that one soon for sure. Yeah, I think because I know that we're getting Discovery novels and we always get something from TNG and TOS, I would like to see DS9 revisited Mm -hmm. from where we left off before with Original Sin and also... You know, what about Enterprise? Yeah, the continuation of the Rise of the Federation series uh, by Christopher L. Bennett. I'd really like to see another announcement in that series because uh, that's a really fun area of Star Trek history. And I think there's a lot more to be mined there. So, But I'll tell you on my wish list, if anything, I would love to see a new novel series that's original on its own, like Vanguard, for example. Mm -hmm. And especially if it took place like as a sidebar to Discovery. Yeah, it's parallel with it. That would be really cool to me. That would be really neat. Also, we do know that um, Alex Kurtzman has signed this deal to expand the Star Trek television universe. Uh, No official announcements as of this recording. We've still got three more days of convention, so maybe there'll be something there. But, you know, I'd like to see, of course, novels tying into whatever comes out of that deal as well, which, uh, you know, hopefully they, they do so. Yeah. Well, and you know, we're getting a comic of Star Trek and Transformers, which we <laughs> talked about before. And I have to mention that I've heard a lot of people talking about that at the show. Oh, a yeah. lot of people are very excited about Star Trek Transformers. And these are mostly people who don't read comics that often. Mm-hmm. It's kind of one of those things that like, it's such a kind of out there idea that I think a lot of people are going to kind of go, well, I kind of want to see what that looks like. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, lots of really cool stuff coming up on the horizon and lots more that's going to be announced in the future. So uh, watch this space, as they say. We've we've got a lot more to come. Yeah, we'll be covering it all, of course. Absolutely, it's what we do. Uh, but in the meantime, what do you say we hop over to the feature and talk about A Time to Harvest? Okay, if you think we should, okay, let's do it. So as I just mentioned, the novel we're talking about this week is A Time to Harvest by Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore. This is the fourth book in the A Time to series and the conclusion to the second duology in that series. Both books by Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore. The first one was A Time to Sew we talked about a few episodes ago. And now we're moving on to the conclusion of that part of the story. So... 
we basically in the first part had the Enterprise encountering the Dakalans, who endured a planetary disaster. Their planet was destroyed, but a few survivors managed to kind of eke out an existence in an asteroid field and build kind of a, an impressive civilization and at the same time also work towards their goal of terraforming a nearby planet. And in the midst of all of that, the Enterprise finds them and manages to save a bunch of them when one of their habitats is uh, having a malfunction and exploding. And we kind of slowly learn that there's some sort of conspiracy going on in the background. And Jordy and uh, Torek are close to uncovering some clues and they're being chased through an asteroid field. In the meantime, the Enterprise is on its way to help out another part of the colony that's having some problems. And there's an undercover operative aboard the Enterprise who has already made one attempt on Data's life and is in a position to do even more damage. So, yeah, that's kind of where we find ourselves going into this second book. So, um, first impressions, Bruce. What did you uh, what did you think of maybe the first part of the story and what were your expectations going into this one? What worked for me about the way this book started off was there was a lot of exposition of what happened in the previous book. It was catching you up on things. It was reminding me of what happened because you know sometimes if you read a book and then you move on to some other books and then you come to a part two or a continuation of a book that was read a few books back sometimes you need that little refresher so it does a good job of catching you up on things and even if you didn't read a time to sow and just went to a time to harvest you won't get lost because uh they do a good job of uh explaining what happened in the previous book and yeah that's Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore which we invited to be on this episode of the newest literary treks but um they were too busy well not too busy but you know their schedules didn't work with our schedules but um but no I I liked how it started off because it kind of started off with a lot of adventure like you're saying with you know them being chased and you know it was reminding me we don't know who's up to this menace of affecting the terraforming and affecting the destruction of the colonies and, and killing this race of beings and there's just a lot of going on in the beginning that it got me really intrigued and back into this book of oh yeah 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 now i remember why this was getting good now let's let's get into it yeah that's one thing i found um, a lot of my complaints about the first duology by John Vornholt, uh, for some reason, I didn't feel the same about this one. So I, I was kind of annoyed that it was split into two books, that first duology, and that, you know, they, it wasn't a complete story without the two of them. But I, I would say that that applies equally to this set, but I'm less annoyed by it. Because, and I, I hate to say this, quite frankly, I think this is just a better story. <laughs> you know, I'm much more into this. I'm I'm enjoying the stakes a lot more. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really digging this story and the mystery of what's going on here. So, like I said, uh, it's continuing the story from a time to so. Uh, we've got the Enterprise in this system. And we kind of soon learn that there's more than just the one operative aboard the Enterprise. And they're working towards some sort of unknown goal at this time. And also, it's pretty clear 
uh, by events towards the end of the last book and at the beginning of this book that uh, the leadership of the Dakalan people, people on the uh, on the council, seem to have been uh, replaced or subverted. We know the uh, security minister, Kraj, I think his name is. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Kraj, but he, um, or no, that's the science minister, I'm sorry, uh, was murdered by the security minister, Nidan, in the last book, mm-hmm. and then is alive and well in this book, very obviously having been replaced by someone else. So, um, like at this point, the uh, did you what did you think was going on with these people? Who did you think was behind this? I'm curious. I'm kind of embarrassed to say. I oh I well I don't know if I should be embarrassed. I knew of course it wasn't the founders or from you know I didn't think it was really changelings. Um, I I don't know what it was at this point in the book, but the fact that they were using different technologies from different worlds, Klingon disruptors and. Uh, federation weapons and things like that i was like you know what it's obviously something a species or or a beings from a planet that we've been introduced to before that knows about the federation the klingons and the romulans and such and for some reason i was thinking maybe it was the breen because i thought at this Mm. point in the novels we hadn't actually seen any of the breen outside of their uniforms it's outside of their helmets uh, of course, in later novels, they d- dive deeper into the Breen and explain what they look like. And I I'm, I'm don't want to spoil too much if you haven't gone there about the Breen in the future novels. But, you know, they were kind of mysterious and unknown at this point when this book was written. So I thought maybe it's maybe they were going with the Breen with this. Hmm, That's an interesting thought. I I hadn't thought of that. I wasn't really sure i had some weird crazy theories during the last book i thought maybe section 31 maybe the vulcans from the 22nd century for some reason i thought that but, too you know, yes for- because the way the first book a time so started off in the archer period of time right yeah pretty quickly i think i shook those off and it was like no well it can't be that that doesn't make a lot of sense once you see, like you said, the tactics they're using and and their attitudes and the weapons they're using and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, I, I really did like, um, because of the time period it's set in, the Dominion War is not that far in the past. So I liked that there was that paranoia there, uh, that maybe it was the founders replacing people. Because if you think about it, that that's something, that's a crisis that, was very recently lived through by this crew and other people in Starfleet that that would be really fresh on their minds. So I never thought that was the way it was going, but I like that that was a suspicion of the characters. I thought that fit really well in the time period it was set in. Yeah, I do too. And I also like the fact that when they themselves figured out ways that, you know, they could rule that out, they, they said, well, there's been other changelings that we've met that weren't necessarily founders that, operate a little differently maybe it could be them and i thought about you know like we saw a changeling for example in star trek 6 the undiscovered country um mm-hmm. so yeah i like the idea that they were exploring all those different avenues but without you know we're not going to get into spoilers as to we're, we're already t- we're already telling you what they're not <laughs> we're not telling you what they are but 
I kept wondering why in the first book did we even explore that time during the early part of the of Starfleet prior prior to the Federation, that period of Archer's timeline with the Vulcan ship. Why how does that connect to the story in any way? Like I don't know what it really brings. There was nothing that really tied into this period of time in the 24th century into that. Unless it was just a, hey, look, Archer's time. Yeah, my suspicion is like, A, it it kind of uh, showcases the period of time we're looking at, like how long this uh, has been happening for these people. But B, also, I think there very much is a a huge aspect of, hey, look, it's Archer in his time. Because, you know, the the time that this was uh, published in, and I'm just going to get the exact year here. Uh, 2004, um, I think it was probably a time where it was kind of cool that the authors were like, hey, like, let's explore a little bit of this time period. Let's bring it in. You mean they could have called this to... a time to be cool? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, let's let's connect these two time periods and, and kind of bring that time period in because there's a bunch of if you think about it at the time, there's a bunch of new stuff in the Star Trek universe to play. Okay. With. And I get uh, that, but that storyline does not involve Archer ship and X01. It was a Vulcan ship during that time period. Mm-hmm. So it's like, why, why involve the Vulcans? The Vulcans really had nothing to do with the story. I, I'm sh- yeah. I'm just trying to connect the dots of why that was significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I, I, I think it, this is just a guess on my part. It's just because of the politics of what's going on at that time and just wanting to make reference to it. Maybe. Um, I also notice in this one that they, they, I think it was actually in a time to, sew. they, um, make a very clear description of the phase pistol that one of the guys is using as being a 22nd century enterprise era phase pistol. So, I mean, I totally could be wrong, but it just really feels like there's a bunch of new toys <laughs> that they want to play with and just kind of pepper uh, references to. Uh, for example, the Denobulan Doctor, Dr. Trop, that we get in these two books, I think was, uh, I believe was an invention first in these two books before. I don't think we've seen him before. Yeah, I, could I don't be know. Wrong. You know, I'm thinking the, the era that I'm talking about, since it's a Vulcan ship, it would explain why they didn't pursue the distress signal. Because uh, if it was Archer's ship, he's like, you know, we need to go, we need to go. And they say, no, oh, it's those Vulcans. They're trying to hold us back again, which we've heard a million times, you know? So maybe it's just mm-hmm. for that reason. I don't know. Anyway, it was just something yeah. I was wondering. No, it's a, it's a good question. It's uh, And I mean, I could be totally wrong. Maybe there's some deep significance that i'm missing yeah and the only reason i I was thinking about it is because as i'm trying to figure out who's doing all this i kept thinking there must be a connection to that earlier story during archer's time and i just never saw that Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i don't know There, there could definitely be um one thing that i i found uh, interesting in this novel too is uh, what data is going through. So he's recovering from this attack that's happened to him and he's, you know, slowly repairing himself for part of this novel. For example, he's um, wandering around the ship on a gravity sled basically because he can't 
work his uh, fine motor skills, with the exception of slightly turning his head and speaking and that sort of thing. Um, and he also comes up with this idea to help move along the terraforming of the planet Ijuka. Now, the Decollins have refused Federation, the Picard's offer of Federation help in this terraforming because they see it as a memorial to uh, what they went through and they want to complete the work themselves. And, um, you know, as, as this kind of grand project that they as a civilization will have accomplished themselves kind of thing. Uh, but basically Data comes up with this plan to... Um, speed their efforts along by introducing another element into the uh, the biosphere of Ajuka. Now, we know... I, I think I'm not giving anything away when I say we know something's probably going to go wrong with this because the science minister who we saw killed in the previous book is basically like, that's a great idea. I will help. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Now, my question is, why on earth would you go ahead with this plan so quickly with there's so many, I'm going to say, hinky things going on here? They know that there's someone like data. Data's malfunction has not been explained. Troy is sensing some weird vibes from certain people that they haven't explained yet. And we have this operation that involves them firing torpedoes at this planet to spread a compound through the atmosphere why would you not like take two or three years and research this and make sure it's good to go and you know learn more about this culture and and that kind of thing before you just went ahead and because did it. it would take too this many books to fill in that several year period the books <laughs> would be called a time to get this story over with uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, real world, yes, obviously. Yes. No, I, I know like, what you're saying. But it, it, it seemed abrupt <laughs> in a way to me because, you know, they are the Ducollins are saying, look, it's like you said, we're we're not looking for help. We know you can help us. We want to do this on our own. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, things in my own life where, you know, I'm working on a project at here at home and like my wife comes over and she goes, Oh wait, I can help you. I can no, no, no. Just let, let me do this by myself. Let me, I want to do this. Like, I know you can help me. I know it could go faster. I just want to do it. So they're working kind of from that standpoint, even to the point that Picard and, and crew say, look, instead of terraforming this planet, we can show you other class M planets or planets that work for your species that you don't have to terraform. We'll just can show you where these planets are and help you get there. And they said, no, 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 we, we want to do this. We want to do it on our own and it's to honor our race and those who came before us and such. So I get that philosophy, that, that interest that they want to do it on their own. But then when data walks mm -hmm. in and says, I can help you do it faster. They say, okay, yeah, sure. Let's do that. <laughs> and I was like, wait, <laughs> what? I thought they would be a little more skeptical and just a little more like hesitant to get into all that. But like you said, some of them aren't really Ducollins. Mm -hmm. And it was revealed later in the book that they actually were considering other planets or doing things differently, but that's not their culture. And so they're kind of holding back. 
But as the leadership group has talking amongst themselves, they were discussing different avenues. I think they were just hesitant to approach that and announce it to the public because they knew they would get resistance on it. So when somebody comes in and mm-hmm. says, keep doing what you're doing, I'll just give you a little gas that you can push the pedal down and move it a little faster. And then some of the council is aren't really do Collins say, yes, that's a good idea. I think that would be accepted. We could do that. And I think that's how it easily came about. And you're right. Why didn't they take a little more time to research and whatever? And I, I don't know. Maybe they were mm-hmm. getting a little antsy, especially um, yeah. the first minister. I mean, he's getting old. He doesn't have a whole lot of mm-hmm. time left. That's true. And I mean, yeah, I mean, when you figure all of that in and the fact that Kreij or Kreij, the science minister, is probably really renowned for being really strict with her scientific acumen and stuff. And it's not actually her. I guess if she's giving the advice, you would probably. Yeah, because she could be like she's proven the Einstein in a sense of their world. And if Einstein's like, oh, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do that. And then an Android shows up and says, I can help you do this. And Einstein says, that would actually be a good idea. Then you'd be like, Mm. oh, if Einstein says it's good, we should do it. (laughs) And then on the enterprise side, I guess I'm kind of answering my own question in my head. I'm like, why would Picard so quickly go with this plan, though? But I think part of it, and maybe it just wasn't communicated as well in the book as it should have been, I think Picard's probably very eager to prove themselves to the DeCollins and win their trust and say, look at what we can do for you. Look at what, you know, we can bring to you and what the Federation brings to you. Uh, instead, I mean, I, like I said, I don't think we're spoiling anything here. This doesn't go well. <laughs> well, and I'm glad you brought up Picard because I think I had a more of an issue with Picard in this situation because data had been deactivated. Mm-hmm. And like you said, he's he's trying to get back up to speed, trying to still put himself together. I mean, he can't even walk yet. He's still not fully functioning. And he comes into a room and says, I figured something out. I would be a little mm. hesitant to say, well, you know, we need to double check what data's put together because he's not fully functional right now. And so he may have missed something or he may misdiagnose this solution. <laughs> But they did. They're like, that sounds good. Let's do it. Yeah. And I think it's really telling. We do kind of get a peek into Picard's head and he does like right before the torpedoes are fired. He's kind of like, are we rushing into like this data? No, I think he's good. I think he's good. We're good. We're good. You got You got to listen to those feelings when you have them, people. If you've got a little voice in the back of your head saying something's not right, you got to listen to it. Because, and I think probably now is a good time to say we're going to get into spoilers yes, here. Yes, I think we are, we're we going to have to. Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, they fire these torpedoes and this uh, this material is dispersed in Ijuka's atmosphere. And, you know, they're monitoring it and data at the back of the bridge basically kind of goes, um, something's not right here. <laughs> <laughs> because the the sensor readings they're getting back are showing that the planet is changing like the composition of the atmosphere and all of that stuff in a way that's not going to help the decolons it's not going to be suitable for what they need to survive 
and it becomes pretty clear pretty fast that whoever's behind what's going on here has subverted this experiment through uh, their operative who's posing as the science minister. Uh, they've subverted it to their own ends. And it's not good. <laughs> the end. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things look pretty bleak at this moment. And I have to say, I was really almost surprised at how well the Docollins took it. Like the fact that the ship shows up and inside of what I'm assuming is probably a couple of weeks at the most, they're like, yes, there's lots of civilizations other than you. We're from a federation. We want to help you, but you know, you don't really want a lot of help, but we'll give you a little bit of help. And here we've ruined your planet. <laughs> like they're pretty, like they're, they're understandably pretty ticked, but at the same time, they're very, uh, understanding Hi Hijatin or however you pronounce his name, the first minister, especially, uh, is pretty gracious in his words. He's like, you know, obviously dealing with a lot of stuff and not happy, but he's kind of like, you know, we understand the, you know, that the spirit in which you've come here and, ah, uh, yeah, we'll deal with this kind of thing. And I'm like, really? You're not gonna like kick their asses out right now? <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit surprised by his reaction, but as you were saying about how the Ducollins, you know, you thought they'd be more upset. If I remember correctly, I don't think most of the Ducollins even know this took knew this took place. It was just more of the council. And then when it was revealed that it wasn't working, it was more to the first minister and he was more gracious. But I, I also wondered there was others there that may have totally disagreed with him and really ticked off. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was, I was just trying to think, you know, that it's not a situation most would be happy with, but for some reason he was more forgiving about it. And I think also because they have come to a point where they've already accepted that this is going to take generations to accomplish and okay, took a chance to speed it up. Didn't work. May make it last longer, but we've already we're already of the mindset this is going to take forever anyway. So thanks, mm. but it didn't work. Go home. Leave us alone. We're just going to keep going. <laughs> yeah my my impression reading that was that they thought that it was irreversible at this point though too. I I don't know. I could have been wrong about that, but I thought. Basically, they were saying, like, it's possible this will never work now. But I don't remember. I just remember I there was a talk that, that it was going to make this take longer. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, oh, that makes more sense then. But yeah. Like, maybe it was, okay. you know, that they'll figure out a way to clean it up. It's just going to delay things. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'd have to go back and read it. Let's go do that right now. <laughs> Basically, all of this is going on. Now they know for sure that some force is operating to subvert what's going on. And LaForge and Torek have, meanwhile, been rescued after having been captured for a while. Uh, and they've learned a bit more. And they come back and make the report and talk about how, you know, the the formulas for the the terraforming have been subtly altered and this sort of thing. And it turns out that the people behind this are a group that we've seen before. And they're, they are the Saturn, the Saturns, Saturns, Saturns. 
Not the Sontarans. Those are from Doctor Who. Oh, those potato head guys. <laughs> yeah, not those guys. These were the guys, if you remember, from the season five TNG episode Conundrum, and they used that memory wiping beam on the Enterprise crew. And then uh, we're going to use the Enterprise to destroy their enemy, the Lycians. And the first officer of the Enterprise was apparently Commander Kieran McDuff, who turned out to be a Saturn operative who was undercover, apparently wearing one of these nifty camouflage suits that we get to see in action. In this I want novel. one of those suits. That's pretty cool. That would be kind of cool. I, I'm, I'm kind of worried though, Bruce. Now, what would what would you use it for? I would go to conventions as you, Dan, and people. Would oh, you know what? Actually, that would just be really easy cosplay. I, I kind of like it. <laughs> <laughs> I show up as you and people are like, oh, Dan, is Bruce around? Yeah, let me go find him. And then I show up as myself. Oh, we just saw Dan. Yeah, let me go get him. And they never see us together. <laughs> also, like, and this is just the total geek in me thinking, not only could you go in like a perfect Starfleet uniform, you could go as Patrick Stewart dressed in a perfect Starfleet uniform. <laughs> You would be mobbed by people the entire time. <laughs> I would go as Patrick Stewart in his Riza outfit. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and hang out by there the pool go. all day. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to sit here with my book. In would you rub some sunscreen <laughs> on my head, please? And just stick a horgon on the table next to you. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my goldfish? Now I really want one, too. Okay. So, yeah, they've got these camouflage suits that basically allow them to assume any form. Um, so what's happening is uh, we saw in the last novel, this uh, operative Kalsha killed Lieutenant Deeks Dix to assume his appearance, an Andorian engineer. And he's still at large on the Enterprise, along with, we find out, a number of other operatives and and then, of course, a ton of them throughout the Ducollins on their high council and presumably elsewhere in their population, keeping an eye on things as well. So what did you think when we found out it was these guys kind of linking back to that episode? The first thought I had was, oh, I need to go watch that episode. It's been a while and I never got the chance to do it. I wanted to, too, and I didn't get a chance either. Um. I guess I was okay with it. Um, I didn't have an issue with it. It wasn't something I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Oh, I love that. Um, but I thought it was an interesting concept. It actually works for this. Um, and then we even have the brother of that first officer uh, in this, uh, the brother of Macduff, who's, I guess Macduff is the MacDuffin of this story. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Um, but no, I, I liked it because I liked the idea of the suit that we were just talking about and how it works with that episode. And um, so, yeah, it was a nice tie in. It wasn't as obvious as something like, oh, it's the Vulcans. Oh, it's the Breen or the Founders. It's something that we probably wouldn't have thought of. I mean, you didn't guess it was them, did you? No, I hadn't. I, I did actually... Um, I had briefly flipped through the book. I was, I was oh, a you did tell me about, I was about I know I'm, I was annoyed with myself. I was about a quarter of the way in and I just kind of flipped through the book, just not really looking, but I just kind of like flittered the pages for whatever reason. And my eye caught the word Sitarin and I was like, 
oh no, I bet you that's them. But, you know, I tried to not let it affect me. But yeah, I spoiled myself a little bit, annoyingly. <laughs> oh, well. well, I'm glad you didn't tell me. Yeah, no, I, I didn't want to. I also didn't want to, like, because Justin had asked me if I found out who it was yet, and I didn't want to say because I didn't want to confirm it to myself. Maybe that was just a random reference. Or, but anyway, yeah. So um, those guys, basically, we learn a little bit of backstory. So their their war with the Lycians raged on after that episode. And uh, basically, the Satarans eventually were defeated by the Lycians, with uh, their world in ruins. And they apparently have very exacting biological requirements for, you know, atmosphere and where they have to live. And they had a really hard time finding other places to live. But they discovered that with just a few modifications, Ijuka would serve their purposes. And they kind of leached off of what the Decolans were doing to terraform it, altering it just subtly enough to be able to be used by them. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting story. I like their motivation. I like that they're not just kind of evil, although they're, they're being pretty horrible. They're, they're basically stealing an entire world from these people who have been working for potentially generations to transform this world. So it's, it's a pretty, I'm going to say dick move. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never heard you say that before. Uh, I, I kind of wanted Picard to say it. Like, well, that's a dick move. <laughs> you know, you could say that if you had one of those suits to look like them. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Put that in the in the column for another reason why I want one. <laughs> yeah, these guys, um, yeah, really are a bunch of jerks, which isn't unusual in Star Trek stories. You know, you have to have the villain in there. It's it's surprising that this is the only plant they could find that would work for them. Um Mm-hmm. And the fact that, I mean, I guess it makes sense what they're trying to do. Um, they're using these people to go ahead and start the terraforming for them. Um, and then try to rid of them at the same time. Not necessarily kill them, but hope that they'll leave and go somewhere else eventually. If they Once certain things are done to the point that the Dakarans feel like they this isn't working, and then they go, but it works enough for these guys then take it over i don't know the satarans i mean they it's theirs now but yeah they're waiting a long time mm-hmm. for this to happen but you know it was funny how they were afraid about the enterprise showing up someday because of the history they have with them and it just so happens it's the enterprise that that shows up yeah there there's definitely a bit of small universe syndrome in this i mean like you said it's the brother of the guy who is the operative on the enterprise like what are the odds of that and, you know, it's the Enterprise itself meddling in their affairs from their perspective again. So it's it's a little bit like, oh, okay, that's a pretty big coincidence. I did like that they used uh, an antagonist that we've seen briefly in the past. I thought that was a, a good idea rather than creating some other species that we've never heard of. I, I really like that they kind of link it back to that. Um, but... You know, there there seems to be, like I said, a lot of coincidences to make this line up perfectly and that sort of thing. Um, as far as the Satarns themselves, I really liked a lot of the characterizations of some of the characters. Uh, 
a lot of them weren't, you know, mustache twirling villains. You know, they, we had the operatives on the Enterprise who, like, for example, Kalsha is really reluctant to kill. He doesn't want to kill. Um, he did kill Lieutenant Dix, but that was like a spur of the moment. There was no other way out kind of thing. And every other time uh, he manages to find a way around killing and instead incapacitating people and, and hiding them away, which actually ends up kind of being their downfall because those bodies are just, or not bodies, those people are discovered uh, in a couple cases bodies because some of the other operatives do kill people as well. So yeah, I, I liked that, you know, they were well-rounded people. They weren't just like, Ooh, I'm evil and being evil kind of thing. Yeah. They all had their own personalities. They didn't come across as person and in their personality as being evil. They're just, on a mission to do what they're doing. Um, and some are very sensitive to not killing and others are a little more apt to do it if they need to. One thing I also liked about the book is we saw an Endorian, which they took the disguise of dicks as the Endorian. And you don't really see many Endorians on the enterprise D or E and I always want to see Andorians. I don't know why I have a thing for Andorians, but, you know, I was like, ooh, an Andorian on the Enterprise. Yay. Uh, so that was cool. Mm -hmm. And also seeing Christine Vale as a security officer. And I'm so used to mm -hmm. her as being the first officer of the Titan with Riker that I loved, you know, seeing her because I didn't read these books before and I really love Vale. And I guess this is the yeah. first introduction of her was in these books. I think so. Yeah. Did you catch the line towards the end of the book that has just become so prescient now where she's in command of the enterprise or something? And she's like, Picard's like, Oh, we're returning on the shuttlecraft. And she's like, take your time. I kind of like this yes. chair. And, uh, Riker's like, Oh, I think she might be after your job captain. And Picard says, Oh, yours number one. And it's kind of cool because if you've been following the Titan series and spoilers, if you haven't, I'm sorry, but you know, Riker was in command of the Titan and then got promoted to Admiral and Christine Vale, who moved over with him to the Titan to be his first officer is now the captain of the Titan. So she did end up taking his job, which is kind of yes, cool. Yes. That scene, those lines stood out to me for the, the same reasons you said. And it's so funny because when the book came out, that probably didn't really mean anything to anybody at that point. But yeah, it was just like a fun little, oh, we have an ambitious officer. Right. Cool. And now you we're know. watching going, tee hee hee. Yeah, she does become a captain someday. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I really liked that. I thought that yeah. was great. I, I love Christine Vale. I think she's a great character. Um, I love that, you know, she's a tactical officer slash security officer who does move on and up and out and, and has a further career beyond this kind of thing. So that's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I like that. And, uh, but going back to the Satarians, I, I really did enjoy uh, them as, I guess, the villain of this book. And a lot of ways they're very similar to the Ducalans in the fact that, of course, they're both trying to save their species and find new worlds for themselves to harvest, to live on. And at the same time, um, they're both not that evil, mustache-twirling types of beings. I mean, they're very just much of trying to take care of their own. 
uh, you know, in the fact that the DeCollins don't want help. And in a sense, the Satarans never looked for help from anybody else except allowing the DeCollins to do the work for them, but secretly mm-hmm. doing it. I'm just saying that it was just, they, they, they weren't this, they, neither one of them were very aggressive. They're just both taking their times and trying to be very savvy and very calculating to get to where they need to go to save their races. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Although one I would say is being very parasitic about it almost, if that makes sense. Um, but speaking of which, I really, you know, one of the basic big reasons that I love Star Trek is it's something that allows us to look at maybe not how we are, but how we can be. And this is where, you know, I would stand up on a soapbox and the, the plinky sentimental music would start playing in the background. You know, Star Trek shows us uh, human humanity at its best, right? We've moved beyond all our silly prejudices and war and, famine and all that stuff and you know picard and Riker and all of them are a more evolved human and and more caring and that sort of thing and the end of this book i think really showcases starfleet and federation principles really well because the satarans have perpetrated these pretty horrible crimes you know they've killed leadership people in the docalan race and taken over them and uh subverted the the efforts of this people to their own whims basically creating a homeless group of people because they you know have all these hopes put on this planet and stuff but after all of that picard says to the leader of the satarans or at least the leader of this group that's doing this that you know the federation will help you to find a new home whether that's to clean up the environmental damage of your current home planet or to help you find somewhere else that we could terraform or convert you know for your use and that sort of thing and he basically says back to picard like after everything we've done after all of what we've done to the decollins and to you you're still willing to do that and picard says to him yes that that's what we do that's what the federation does you know and i was just like single tier like oh the federation you guys are the best i don't know that i could do that i think if i were in picard's place as an unevolved 21st century human who's still a product of his admittedly very petty world i don't think i could do that i think i'd be like i know you 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 know i'm gonna throw you in particular in prison and i i can't i can't in good conscience reward what you've done here you know, and I just, I love that Picard, uh, I don't know, extends though, Dan, that. I kind of disagree. I think you would do what Picard did. I think you would look at it as he did, as this is something that the Sakaran, Sataran leadership has done wrong and will be punished and locked up, but you're not going to punish the whole species. You're not going to punish the whole planet for what the few leaders did. Yeah, I guess that's true. That's true. It's my my anger would be directed at the the individuals who perpetrated this for sure. So yeah, I guess. Yeah, you're right. I mean, think of some <laughs> you know the countries in our world that 
there's issues with and you wouldn't hold the people of the country. You'd hold the leadership. That's true. I, yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah, you're right. You know, if I really sat and thought about it, I'd be like, yeah. See, I knew that Starfleet officer is deep inside of you. I would so totally punch that guy out there, at least. <laughs> like, Picard's still nicer than I would have been. And I'd be like, hold him, number one. <laughs> I mean, you know, I would say, now that you're mentioning it, I think I would have liked it, that part a little better if he was, if Picard was a little more pissed off. And just like, you know, hmm. I shouldn't even try to help you. You know, I shouldn't even do what I'm going about to do. And believe me, you know, I'm not doing it because I like you, because I don't. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but see, then he wouldn't be that wonderful 24th century evolved human. So I, I don't know. I like that. I like that uh, sometimes I think it's a bit too tropey that Star Trek is, you know, they're so evolved and perfect. But sometimes I just really like basking in that idea that, people can be so selfless and so giving of themselves that just without a second thought, be like, of course, of course we're going to help your people. Like we were never not going but to. That's it. Because that, that that's the yin and the yang of this. I mean, you have the Ducalans that do, do not want help. They're not looking for help, but Starfleet is there to say, we're willing to help you. And they're saying, no, thanks. We're good. But then you have the Satarans there and they don't ask for help, though they need help. And yet, because they don't ask for help, they're not getting help from Starfleet. And when Starfleet identifies them as needing help, they're there to help them. If they had only just asked, you mm -hmm. know, and it really wouldn't make sense if both races just would, you know, suck it up and ask for help, listen to what could be done and then decide if they want to go that route or not, as opposed to waiting for, mm. you know, being there and Starfleet comes and tells you, hey, we can help you. No, thank you. Well, no, listen to what they can do. Maybe they can speed things up. Maybe they maybe there is something there that could really benefit you. And you still have that honor and that promise to do it on your own. But then just take a little bit of help to get you there a little faster. And, you know, if you're instead of taking advantage of another race and what they're doing to the product. Go ahead and ask for help of Starfleet. They're already aware of the Federation and all these other worlds. Why don't they go and ask somebody? Why didn't they go and ask the Klingons or the Romulans or the Federation or anybody and just say, hey, there are so many billions of worlds out there. Can you find one that fits us so we don't have to terrorize these guys? Yeah, no, that's totally true. And I think if we're looking for a theme of this story, it would probably be don't be afraid to ask for help. I think that's that summarizes it perfectly. I mean, you know, maybe the DeCollins did regret having a bit of Federation help when it looked like their world was going to be in ruins and they weren't going to be able to move in like they figured they would be able to. But, you know, in the long run, to use all the cliches, we're all in this together and, you know, let's you know, help a brother out. You know, <laughs> I really like that. I like that idea that all you need to do is ask for help and help will be there. You know, that's yes, awesome. all this could have been avoided if both races just ask for help. So I guess uh, on that note, um, there's, there's a bunch about this book we didn't quite talk about yet either. There's a, there's a whole secondary issue with the DeCollins with regards to, 
their reliance on the radiation in the asteroid belt uh, because basically they've inoculated themselves over the years to it to the point where they're actually dependent on it to live. So there's some question as to whether or not they'll ever be able to leave the area and settle another planet uh, or if they have to spend uh, the rest of their civilization's life where they are. And this was interestingly a question that wasn't completely resolved in the novel, which I thought was an interesting choice. Basically, we get Crusher at the end saying she's going to keep researching it and, you know, work with the Dakalan doctors uh, to try and overcome this. But they don't resolve that by the end, which is an interesting, uh, interesting way to handle that. That's a good point. Yeah, they never did really come to a solution with the radiation uh, situation because you know they were on this asteroid colony and because of the radiation people were getting sick and so they had to come up with some type of medicine that would keep them from getting sick from the radiation if anything they it turned them to be dependent on the radiation so to remove the radiation mm-hmm. was actually having an effect on them uh, a negative effect on them so what do you do you know um, and that, yeah. yeah, that was never really answered. So now I'm starting to wonder why that was even introduced in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think it was to make the stakes of what, um, uh, what the, the Sitarans were doing even more. So they're going to take this world from the Dakalans and then the Dakalans literally have nowhere else to go because they can't leave the system because of this, um, reliance on the radiation um, I did. I did like the way it ended because it was ho- it was on a hopeful note. I I think from what we read, like they're eventually going to figure out a cure for this and get them over it. But basically, Beverly says like she'll she'll keep working on it and she'll keep researching and you know my, all my research will be at your disposal and we'll figure it out kind of thing. It's an interesting. Uh, I'm glad not everything was wrapped up in a nice, neat little bow, if that makes sense. And the Satarans wanted this planet because there was, there were no other planets that, that they could live on. So it makes me wonder right. if they were dependent on something themselves that they had created that only this planet had. Hmm. So maybe there's a parallel between the two. It's not identified in here, but what is it makes the Satarans so unique that there's only one other planet that they can live on? Mm-hmm. That was something that was kind of just glossed over, which was interesting that, uh, you know, they're, they're wearing those suits on the enterprise and stuff, but I don't think the suits were helping them breathe or anything like that. Uh, and they seem to be surviving just fine on the enterprise. Like what was the environmental need that they had that could only be, uh, fulfilled by this planet. That's that, that struck me as odd. And this is one book that, I finished reading thinking, okay, I want a future book to come back to them. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times I read the books and it's, you know, like you said, the bow is tied on top, boop, done, you know. This was one that I was just like, okay, it'd be interesting if sometime in the next couple decades after this, you know, an older Enterprise crew or Voyager crew or Titan or what, Titan actually would be the best. Titan returns mm-hmm. back and finds them and sees what their current situation is. Yeah, especially with a lot of the ties to Titan, like Captain Vale could, uh, you know, if if this was back in the day when the Star Trek novels had a little asterisk and a little thing at the bottom, 
you know, Captain Vale could be on the bridge and say, I remember the last time I was in the Docolin system. I was just a security officer on the Enterprise. A little asterisk, as seen in the Star Trek novels, a time to sow and a time to harvest. Exactly. <laughs> that would be cool. But yeah, no, that would be really cool. I, I would love to know what's become of these guys and how Ijuka's doing and, and how all of that's going. Or yeah. you can even turn it around to be a very negative experience, like, you know, a.k.a. Wrath of Khan type of situation where uh, hmm. uh, Starfleet sends a starship to that planet and things are not going well. And they're wondering why the Federation hasn't checked up on them. Hmm. They That's offered their help thought. and then they left and never came back to check on them. <laughs> <laughs> and then we could have monologuing by the new uh, first minister, Majoral, you know, saying to Picard from hell's heart, I stab at thee. <laughs> That's not the first time you've done that, is it? Uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bruce, if you were to give your final thoughts and maybe a rating on A Time to Harvest, what would you say to that? I would say that this is a good follow-up to A Time to Sow. It's a good chapter in the Time to series. It does also uh, reflect on the previous two books, the first two books. There was some of that worked in here with uh, Picard dealing with things. And I love uh, Picard and Beverly's relationship uh, in this mm. book and how you know things are growing and they're getting closer. I mean, I'm not saying it was romantic in any way. It was just showing that they have, you know, a, a, a good friendship and maybe there is something more there, which I think will come later. But, um, and of course, seeing Vale and Andorian here were really good for me. But um, no, I think for everything that we've just said, I think the whole DeCollins uh, were interesting in how they're terraforming the planet and not wanting help. And there was a lot of adventure in that and the mystery of, of who was preventing things from happening. So it had me guessing. I wouldn't say it was like, you know, that big of a mystery book but it was something i did kept trying to figure out who are these people who are these people who are these people and um it's the satarans and it wasn't like a oh my gosh it was just a oh okay yeah okay that's cool that's interesting i can see that it was kind of like that so i mean i really enjoyed the book and uh, i would recommend it so i would say that i give it four mcduffins out of five <laughs> nice I like it. Yeah, I think I agree with a lot of what you said. I really liked how it wrapped up the story. I think like the the duology, A Time to Be Born and A Time to Die, I was really disappointed in how that wrapped up. But this one, I think Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore just really stick the finish. Like they really um, finished up the story in a really uh, interesting and compelling way. Uh, I really like the DeCollins. And like I said, I want to revisit them someday. I'd love to go back here or at least even just have them mentioned, you know, what's going on, how they're doing and that sort of thing. Uh, I think all of the secondary characters were really uh, well-written and interesting. And the moment when the new first minister, Majoral, presents Picard with the gift of Hajatin's uh journals oh, translated yes. into English. That was beautiful. Like I just, you know, if it was a television show or a movie, like I might have welled up a little bit at that point because like it was just so good. You know, it was really 
uh, warm moment. We've spent, you know, two books with these people. We've invested a lot of time with about learning about them and their culture. And it really felt like a, just a nice bookend to the tale of the Collins. So yeah, definitely really enjoyed this one. A few little weird things with the plot moving along too fast and stuff kind of done for uh, dramatic purpose rather than it making really logical sense. But, you know, that stuff's pretty minor when it comes to telling the story. So, yeah, I'd have to give this one um, four out of five torpedoes containing phylosium detonated in Ajuka's atmosphere. Uh, but these ones make Ajuka better. They they do good things rather than mess it up. Oh, that's good, so. yes, because you want them to be able to live there happily ever after. Well, I really want to get my cosplay on now because, you know, this whole idea of the Sakarans or the Satarans or the Katarans, Dadarans, whatever, they all sound alike to me right now. But the Satarans, <laughs> you know, having that that shield, the uniforms on that they can just holographically project something else onto themselves as another person is pretty cool. The, yeah, it absolutely is. And that reminds me because we're going to be going to Star Trek Las Vegas here right away. Uh, actually will I think be there when this episode comes out, if I'm not mistaken. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got to ask, are you into cosplay? Will you be cosplaying? I will not. Uh, will you? Okay. All right. I'm not really into cosplay. I do have one costume that I had made, uh, one year when they were like, you know, get everybody on board to break the, the record number of Star Trek cosplayers in one place at a time. Uh, so I do have one costume that maybe I'll bring. I don't know. I haven't broken it out in a while, although I did wear it for a recent Halloween. So, Oh, really? Um, I'm trying to think what that yeah, is. Yeah. I, I want to be surprised. Don't, don't tell me. If you wear <laughs> no. Okay. I won't I don't, tell you. I don't cosplay just because number one, it takes some effort to put all that together. And I just like, don't want to think about it, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And number two, the main reason is I just like being comfortable I, it's like I just love being in like jeans and a t-shirt and sneakers and just running all around. I've known so many cosplayers that after a while they're like, oh, I need to go back up to my room. My feet are killing me in these boots or, oh, you know, this. And I mean, it's a lot of fun and, and, and all that. But uh, I, I will say that if I cosplay, it'd probably be a bit annoying. Anybody who's listening to this now who thinks I'm annoying, I'd be really annoying in cosplay because <laughs> I would so take on the character at all times. I think that's one of the problems I have mm. is the idea of getting into costume. I mean, in this, this is the same thing with, with Halloween and everything. The idea of being in a costume to me is I just want to play the character the whole time. And <laughs> if I was a pirate, you'd be like, I'm really getting sick and tired. Bruce keep going around going, all right, mate. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, my, my one costume is very low key. And it's very uh, comfortable. So I don't, yeah. I These people that go like dressed as full out Borg with fiber optics and flashing lights or, you know, full Klingon leather outfit and makeup and stuff, like all the power to them. I could never do that. Oh, I think goodness. I know my favorite <laughs> cosplay for me would be wearing just the black disco shirt and stuff looking like I'm working out yes. on Discovery because that's how I want to dress all the time. <laughs> I really want one of those shirts that's on my list to get in Vegas because Star Trek.com, you know, I love the products you have there. It looks really cool, but 
the shipping to Canada is ridiculous. Get that sorted. Oh, I had so. issues getting mine from just being here in the States. My mom ordered it, ordered it for me for Christmas and it took like two months, mm. like two months oh, after it's, Christmas. It's not even, that's, that's insane. Like it's not even that. It's just the cost yeah. for shipping when it's like more than the price of the, the item. No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> well, it's been fun fun in quotes, talking about ridiculous shipping prices today, <laughs> but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. It's a white uniform and you're dealing with medical blood, all this other stuff, fluids. Yeah. That thing ain't going to stay white. So in my head, they're treated that it just doesn't even stick. It just repels off it. Earl Grey. So Picard says he won't transfer anyone off the ship, but as a compromise, get ready for this. As a compromise, he will reassign Worf as Wesley's tutor. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yes. Put some discipline in that boy. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. This is like a choice you could, I, I don't know. I, I would imagine. And I really like this story. Like it? <laughs> yeah. There's, there's more later, but yeah, Worf as Wesley's tutor. Melodic treks. And, uh, you know, I talked to the producers when I first did the show, and the first thing they had me do was take a combination of the dun da 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 you know, the Sandy Courage wonderful horn theme, and uh, Jerry's da 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 you know, his theme for the first movie, and, and make a theme out of those and combine them. So I did it electronically, and they said, good enough. And I said, oh, look, this is not my specialty. And they said, never mind, you got it. So. 18 years later, you know, that was it. The 602 Club. I did definitely feel what you're saying, Matt, like it was a, a Bond greatest hits in that opening sequence. Um, you've got Russians again, well, or supposed to be in Russia. You've got, um, you know, a group of um, terrorists all gathering together about, you know, all these different weapons. And you're trying to ID people. And then, you know, we of course bring back in M um, and then she's having to argue now with um, the government and the military um, and then you know I like that they kind of bring in Bond in a subtle way calling him White Knight this time um, that was cool but yeah I, I think otherwise it feels very familiar but in a great way um, I feel like Arnold dealing with the music um, and then the actors as well taking good direction made a lot of intensity in that scene so you don't feel like you're moving into the film slowly they're coming at you full force and then you know bond runs off with the plane um so i i really liked it and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond where did you get this podcast? Well, you can find lots of other podcasts from Trek FM in the same place. Hey, you know what? If you are listening right now on an Apple device, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts because then you can listen to us like all the time. And it can be on your iPhone, your iPad, Apple TV, the desktop iTunes app. You get all those latest episodes, all the newest ones that are published when they come out. And please leave us a star rating and written review. We'd love to hear what you have to say. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry. We got you covered. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, 
TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I really wish there was a direct way that I could help bring these shows to the general population each week, but I just don't know how? Well, guess what? You can help us out by becoming a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. And those are all available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Okay, so you're still listening to us. That's a good sign. That must mean that you're like a really strong Star Trek fan and that you enjoy Trek FM shows like this one. So let's say that you want to get even more involved. Well, the best place to do that in the larger conversation is in the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up to us. Now, listen, even if you're like, oh, I don't use Facebook, I don't have an account, create a Facebook account and just do Babel Conference. You don't have to be friends with anybody on Facebook. You don't have to share pictures and share what you ate yesterday on Facebook. Just play in the Babel Conference with us. You'll really love it. But you can also send us an email. If that's the direction you want to go in, that's fine. You can send us a re- an email straight to us. Go to the website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks and it will come right to us. You can also find us on the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You know, if you're thinking to yourself, Bruce and Dan, Twitter and Facebook, that all sounds all well and good, but there's no real way on there to see what's coming up on future shows and what books I should be reading. Well, you know, that is a, we should probably take care of that on those as well, but there's actually a specialized place where you can find all of that information out. And that's on Goodreads. We have a Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of the previously covered books, as well as a currently reading section. So you know what's coming up for the future shows. So you can follow along with us and make sure you're all caught up on reading like me and then reading extra Star Trek novels because you're crazy. And of course, there are also great conversations happening about all the books and comics there as well. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group, and we'll let you right in. We'd also like to take a moment to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chamatala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being, uh, being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not helping out Data by making sure that his motor pathways are all reconnected properly, where can we find you? You can find me hanging out with Jordy LaForge because we share this in common. And you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me talking about Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast, wherever podcasts are sold. I guess they're not sold. They're just streamed. (laughs) So you can find us there. And of course, you can always find me in that fabulous The Babel Conference and in our Goodreads group. So, Dan, when you're not cosplaying as Picard to throw everybody off so you can say all the lines you've ever wanted to say as Picard, where can people find you? Well, number one, you can find me. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. (laughs) 
forgot to turn that off. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And if you listened to this point, I want you to, if you have the time, uh, tweet both me and Bruce at Kurtrats and at um, Admiral underscore Rex. Tweet us with the hashtag to the end. (laughs) So you can tell us that you actually listened to the end of this episode. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Productions, youtube.com slash Productions, where I make lots of uh, Star Trek videos, probably lots of them coming out about the STLV 2018 that we're at right now. Uh, and you can find me, of course, in the Babel Conference as well. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.